Hello, welcome to Culture Dumps. I'm Ryan Lichten, and today is another special episode. I'm joined by filmmaker Celia Anaskovich. She's done all kinds of amazing documentaries. A lot of the stuff that she's done can fit into the dump realm. For instance, Beanie Mania, uh, about Beanie Babies. She just recently put out Call Me Miss Cleo on HBO Max about, you guessed it, Miss Cleo. Uh, pretty amazing. We were going to do an episode about that, but I thought, why not have someone who just told the story, probably the best it's ever going to be told on the show. We were lucky enough to get her on. Also, uh, she put out the, uh, well, yet, yet to be released Woodstock 99 documentary, Burn It Down, which we'll, we'll discuss. Um, Parks and I actually, in a very small capacity, helped with that film. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to talk about Miss Cleo. We're going to talk about Beanie Babies, Woodstock, a little true crime. But before we get into the interview, you must know January 20th in Los Angeles, California, Culture Dumps will be performing live at Whammy Analog Media in Echo Park. We are going to be joined by Bill Conway, one of the founders of The Hard Times, Adam Papagan, a returning guest of the show. He'll be showing clips of his appearances on court TV shows, and we'll also be joined by Brett Berg of the Museum of Home Video. It's going to be a multimedia edutainment experience. Tickets on sale now at whammyanalog.com, or you can get them at the door, but there's a pretty good chance that this is going to sell out. Um, there's also going to be a pop-up store from Meth Syndicate. Um, pretty cool. Everyone on the show has been on Culture Dumps. So it'll be fun. It's a family affair, January 20th in Los Angeles. But without further ado, this is my interview with Celia Anaskovich. All right, folks, I am sitting here with Celia Anaskovich, a very talented producer, director, podcaster, writer extraordinaire. Thank you for coming on Culture Dumps. Thanks for having me. Now, we met through uh, an earlier project that you had done. You did uh, Burn It Down, a Woodstock 99 documentary. And you were uh, the first to come to us, the only <laughs> the only one to, to get us on it. And I'm, we're all very excited about that. But we're not here to talk about that per se, because you just came out with Call Me Miss Cleo. Uh, all of our listeners have been sending us that. Like, did you guys hear about this? Did you guys hear about that? I was like, not only that, but I can probably get the person that did it on the show. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> here you are. So let's uh, let's let's start there. Call me Miss Cleo about the famed telephone psychic, uh, infomercial goddess. When did you kind of catch? How did the film come about? Was it your idea? Where, where did it come from? Yeah, so I um, worked with Gunpowder and Sky, who were the production company on this, who actually have a tie to our Woodstock film as well. Um, their head of docs, Joanna, was our EP on our Woodstock film. Um, and she and I have known each other since then. Um, and she came to me and we sort of um, actually it was it was right before Joanna had come on. Um, so working with Gunpowder, and then Joanna joined forces too. And uh, we started talking about kind of the 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 cultural zeitgeist of this era and kind of who mm. were the people that we remember and what were the things and we were batting around a couple of different ideas actually um and then we all sort of landed on miss cleo and we um were so lucky to have hbo max as a partner on this and it just felt like sort of the perfect time to tell this story with the perfect story with the perfect network and we just kind of couldn't have asked for anything more and i think for me personally um you know i grew up as a kid watching miss cleo on tv um and a lot of the films uh that i make are sort of unified by uh, a theme of kind of um 
stories that have been kind of lost and forgotten to history. So they're those stories that like, whenever I tell someone, they're like, oh God, yeah, I remember that. Like whatever yep. happened, <laughs> right? Like, so it's a classic, what's that 99? Like it's, 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 it's lodged in our brain somewhere. It takes up brain space, but we've sort of forgotten, don't know all of the details and, and kind of wonder. And I'm always particularly intrigued when I find a, a story about a woman um, where I don't know much about the story. Um, because to me, that's always a sign that, okay, there's something more here that's either been covered up or just not explored. Um, and then certainly digging into Miss Cleo's story, I found far more than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, you know, that's the kind of crazy thing because, you know, growing up, I mean, you know, same here. I grew up seeing her in between Girls Gone Wild infomercials. It would be Miss Cleo, uh, these two dichotomy of late night television, I guess. But, um, you know, you, you would hear these things like, oh, she's a fraud and all this stuff. And what I loved about the film is you break down kind of each rumor, um, you know, and maybe not necessarily like on purpose. It's just how it unfolded. And I just was so surprised how much like I had gotten wrong, how much like the just the story of Miss Cleo is misunderstood. Um, like what was something that surprised you the most when when digging into this? I think part of what surprised me, well, it's hard to answer, right? You know, like th there's the classic kind of, it surprises you and then you think, oh, but it doesn't surprise me at all. You know, Raven has that right. line of, in our film of that, that's America, you know, there, there's, right. a, there's a lot of that. Um, but I am always disheartened and surprised when I see a story that we've tried to kind of um, fit in a box. I think we do that a lot as just human beings, um, but also the media particularly um, really wanted to make Cleo's story kind of neat and tidy. We wanted to fit her in a mold. We wanted to decide, was she good? Was she bad? Was it black or white? And nothing about Cleo's story is neat and tidy and nothing about no. Cleo's life is is kind of black or white, good or bad. It's complicated as any human being's life story is. Um, and so it, it surprised me that we that we still this many years later though, see her as the butt of the joke, right? Like you ask anybody on the street, do you know Miss Cleo? The first thing they're gonna say is, oh yeah, she's that fake Jamaican woman who scammed all those people out of millions of dollars. Like that's the refrain we get of Miss Cleo. And it's so one dimensional. And our hope with the film was really to sort of create a new multi-dimensional frame with which viewers could understand Miss Cleo and see Miss Cleo and, and, and breathe new life into her legacy and really kind of um, carve out uh, a new conversation uh, that we wanted to have about this person and about, gosh, all of the things in her life and her backstory and, uh, you know, what starts as sort of a, uh, a a biopic and ends as a biopic as well also is a little bit true crime and a little bit uh, investigation and it's it's all across the board. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that's kind of the thing, because, you know, her name, it was it was Miss Cleo's hotline, you know, so everyone kind of assumed stupidly that she was in charge. And what I feel like a lot of people don't understand about that particular like area of entertainment industry, like infomercials is no, they're an actor like she was under contract. She was getting paid just the same as, you know, like probably some of the crew members were and had nothing to do with that. But she was the face. And there was always this talk of like, oh, is this this is kind of like a racial stereotype that she's doing. But the true racist aspect was the exploitation of this black woman. But from these two white guys that were just like the men in the tower. And that really shocked me was to find out how little money she actually made from that and how little control she had. Um, when you 
came across that and tried to get the guys. I mean, what was the exchange like just trying to get, cause obviously they didn't participate in the film, the owners of the company, but like, what can you tell me a little bit about the exchange trying to get them? Yeah. So we, as, as we would in any film, we've, we reached out to um, all of the people involved and, and I'll say not just, you know, not just them, but we reached out to um, various people in Cleo's life as well, who, who um, despite being very, um, pro Cleo didn't want to be in the film. I mean, there are lots of reasons people don't want to be in films, right? It's not just because they're worried about sure. a lawsuit or like, there's lots of reasons, even as simple as like, I don't want to be on camera, which I can understand personally, you know, like lots of people yeah. don't, don't want to be in a documentary. But, um, when it came to them, um, we, we knew early on, we always would want to reach out to them. I would have loved, uh, to sit in an interview chair and, and talk to them and, and try to understand and ask them questions. Um, they did not want to do that. Um, their their legal counsel uh, replied on their behalf and sent a letter, um, which often happens in cases like this um, in, right. in films. Um, and we printed part of that letter um, to get their response. Um, but but what they said in their letter, um, which was part of what we said in the film, um, and they verified is that Cleo had no relation to the inner workings of PRN. She was she was solely sort of a person that we hired to to be in the network and she had no say in in sort of the larger operation. And so in many ways, I I was um happy to get that letter and be able to to put that in the film. And again, you always would rather sit down with someone, but I also sure. understand. Um and and we uh we did everything we could um to give them the opportunity if they wanted to and and they decided they didn't. Um unfortunately Cleo is not still with us anymore. So we only have her kind of retrospectively um, through her her past interviews. Um, but I think hopefully we piece together enough of uh, the story that people now have a better sense of exactly kind of how it went down. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it's a, it's an unfortunate aspect of the film that she wasn't around anymore and she's passed on, but it also kind of lends more to the, like the mystique around the whole story too, is that like, she just wasn't there to say. Um, but speaking of the, the, the two owners of the company and their legal counsel, it seemed like when they were going through the lawsuits and all that, and Miss Cleo got drug into it, that the lawsuit on her end kind of became more about just exposing who she really was rather than getting her to pay any fines or anything. Like it seemed like more of just like the court of like the public wanting to expose this person and not really care about whether or not she did anything wrong because at, like as the film shows uh spoiler alert but this is why <laughs> this is why we're here but uh it, you know it shows that she was let let go you know she was let off the hook and, and then it just became about the two guys but her reputation had already been tarnished uh would you agree that it seemed that as the trials kind of started most people just wanted to get the dirt on who miss cleo was and they didn't really care if she did anything wrong or not so it's interesting. I think it's it's that was another big impetus for making the film. You know, when I tell anyone, oh, I made a film about Miss Cleo, I get one and only one question. Everyone asks the same question, which is, was she Jamaican or not? <laughs> and it's fascinating to me because we do explore that question in the film. But in my mind, that's actually the least interesting question of Cleo's whole story. And so I think there is this desire, whether it's through a lawsuit or just sort of idle chatter to want to pick apart someone's identity and want to kind of um, not focus on, I mean, we've heard this refrain a million times, um, you know, in, in documentaries and stories in general, no one remembers 
the retraction that's printed at the end of right. you know a story. They remember the headline that hit the first page, not how it ended. Um, and, and that must say something about how our brains work as human beings, right? Um, but I think it was really important for us to make sure people understood that um, you know, legally, she was not held responsible. Her name was dropped from the case. Morally and ethically, um, I think that's a more nuanced, complicated question. Does she um, is some of is she to blame for some of it because she knowingly took part? Again, I think everyone probably has a different opinion and a different answer on that. Um, but I do think you know we we often we often go straight to just. Um, attacking people's identity and, you know, their humanness. And it's, I think, one of the worst parts of us as as people. And I think one of the yeah. things um, I found in making this, and again, a little bit of spoiler alert, but um, Cleo did scam some people pre her Miss Cleo days um, when she was in a theater in Seattle. And uh, at the end of the film, those same people are able to come back and say, you know, I I forgive her sort of I I I know now kind of a little bit more of maybe what it must have been like to be her and how hard it must have been and so for me there's always a sense of you know what if those people can have a little grace for Cleo like maybe we can all have a little grace for for everyone. Right. Yeah, I, that I found really interesting, too, was her acting background and like that she did come from a performing arts background. And it kind of again, like when you're watching it, you're like, I found my opinion on her changing so much as the film went on. And then by the end of it, you're kind of like, oh, man, like we really lost a good one, you know, <laughs> but like maybe 10 minutes in, you're like, oh, my God, like what a scammer. And then when you find out about the yeah, when she stole the money from the theater group, you're like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, she's a total grifter. But then like your opinion on that totally changes. And something I found interesting was that she actually was skilled with reading tarot and was you know actually that was a huge part of her life and her spirituality but the kind of industry of hotline psychics is uh, a farce in my opinion and there is a lot of advantage taking uh what, what are your thoughts on that industry as a whole because it really does seem like people are just so desperate they'll spend whatever money just to hear someone on the other end of the phone you know are they taking advantage of these people and how deep does that go yeah, so the hotline industry, and I mean, it, it's interesting, right? Because anyone below the age of, say, 30, it isn't even going to remember that this industry existed, um, right. that you could call in and there were these 1-900 and 1-800 numbers, not just for psychics, but we go into a little bit in the film, but you could call for a joke. You could call for, there was like a, a Freddy Krueger recording line. There was like, there were all mm -hmm. sorts of these crazy hotlines. Um, and I do think they... They, they prey on the most vulnerable. They prey on those people who who come to them with a need. Um, and one of the things I found really interesting in sort of exploring that era through the film was finding out that in a lot of ways, this was sort of a stand-in for therapy before therapy was sort of wild, widely accepted and acknowledged as something that we all need. Um, right. These hotlines um, became like therapist office for people and uh therapist office that you pray pay a pretty penny for and maybe the guy on the other line is a 19 year old kid who has no idea what he's doing like bennett yeah reading from a manual right. that i found really right. interesting was that they had like a script for everyone to use like no matter who was calling well and that script in the film um is actually the real script we we took that from the ftc investigation and printed those out and rebound them. Like we didn't make up those scripts. Those were the those were the words they actually used uh, when they were when they were on the line. But I think it is. It's also though a fine line, right? I think 
I think people were taken advantage of. I think they preyed on people. But I also think that a lot of the people I talked to who worked for the hotline really did want to try to help. Um, and I think that's something I've always really related to with Cleo as well. Um, Deborah Wilson says it in our film that Cleo's want for herself became her want from the for the world. She wanted to be loved and validated. And she wanted other people to feel loved and validated. And I think that comes from a really good place. Um, I also think I'd be remiss not to say, you know, it's really interesting making a film about, uh, at its core, sort of, psychic powers and spirituality and yeah you know half half the population just doesn't believe that that's even possible that those things exist and so if you're half of that population you know no one's going to convince you that cleo had any powers because powers don't exist if you're part of a population that does believe that those sorts of things can exist then maybe you think a little bit more, okay, maybe Cleo did have some sort of gift. Um, but it's been really interesting as well to sort of watch. Um, I love people have been kind of live tweeting their watchings. Yeah. Um, and it's been really fun to sort of see like people who go in knowing nothing and and sort of where they get to by the end. Um, but, you know, I, personally, I don't know what I believe when it comes to all of that. Um, right. but, but I will say I've heard some really convincing stories about Cleo. Um, we had some crazy things happen during production sometimes. Like there was a series of of interviews where like in every interview, something fell off the wall. Like, you know, just, yeah. so <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know what to, and I'm sure Cleo has lots of thoughts from, from beyond the grave for all of us, but unfortunately right. we never know about this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Deborah Wilson. Uh, what, kind of struck me was, you know, you had Raven in there, you had Deborah Wilson, and then you showed clips of all the different parodies, like Chappelle doing it and stuff. That really brought me back and just kind of shows you how big she was. She was such like an iconic piece. And I feel like after her, because now like, I, I forget his name. There's like a guy on Netflix who's a sidekick and has people. And there was a dude that had like the daytime television show where he would connect you with the relatives. I feel like she made that what would have been reserved for after midnight commercials to a mainstream thing you know like a, a main like making psychics go mainstream whereas i think the only thing we had before her that was like that was dion warwick's psychic hotline um which who knows if there's any weird stuff with that i'm sure there's weird stuff with all <laughs> the, these psychics but uh i mean are you uh so are you gonna go to a, a psychic now i mean like <laughs> did, did, do you feel like there's a, a, any merit like for, for you personally like what, what do you would you put your trust in a psychic Oh gosh, I don't, you know, I'm not sure I'd seek it out, but I'm also not sure I'd turn it down if that makes sense. Um, you know, I think there are people who listen really well. Um, and I think that Eileen, who was one of the callers, um, who is now a sort of spiritual Reiki healer spoke really eloquently about this to us. And we didn't get to include all of it in the film, but that, you know, there, there are, there are, and Raven talks about it too, sort of auras and feelings and, and things that, that lots of people call by different names. Some people may call it a power. Some people may call it, you know, uh, a deep empathy. Some people may call it um, a religion, you know, but I think we all can sort of agree that there are things we can't explain, right? There are things that happen in our lives that we can't explain. And and what we chalk that up to, I think, is different for each person. Um, but I think it's it's interesting to see as well, you know, you were talking about Cleo sort of starting it and bringing it mainstream. Um, I saw someone tweet the other day, uh, Cleo walked so that uh, the TikTok 
TikTok psychics could run. And I think that's exactly it. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, if she was around now, I mean, especially oh, if, yeah. with a, a film like with this film coming out, if she had been around and she was in it, I feel like she would have been totally redeemed. She would have been a huge star all over again, probably gotten her own show. You know, I, I, think, I think she'd that she be just... like schooling people on TikTok too and being like, all day. Know, yeah, you're standing on my shoulders and like, you don't know what you've done. Um, and yeah, I think she'd be having a ball with it. I think she'd be, she'd be having a laugh. And, uh, but I also hope, I think she would be, you know, one of the things that was, was hard was that she's not around to answer, you know, we talk about some, some very sort of serious and dark mental health issues as well. Um, and, and we'll never really know to what degree, um, you know, that, that was prevalent in her life. Um, but I do hope that, you know, there, there was from everything I learned about Cleo, I do think there was a sense of healing that came towards the end of her life. You know, Cleo played many roles. She embodied many characters. She, she lived many different kinds of lives. We don't even, um, you know, there are lots of things we, we didn't have time for in the film. She was, she had, uh, two late husbands. She had kids. Oh, wow. Um, Whoa, she, yeah, wow. That's, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, but I think there was something in watching the way she settled into to Florida and, and to Lake Worth and, and met those people. And it sort of felt like the final chapter of her life, sadly, um, cause she didn't live very long was sort of the the one place where she finally was able to figure out who that true Cleo was and and live it. And so it's I think it's it's really wonderful. Um, and I'm glad we got to end the film in that stage of her life with those people. It does end on, on a high note. I mean, even, you know, when they're talking about when she goes into hospice and stuff like right before that, she had taken a great vacation, you know, and was like, you know, soaking her feet in the sand. It's like that. That's like, yeah, it's a, it's a high note for, for sure. Now, she was pretty kind of private uh, outside of being on TV. Do you think that that was to protect the integrity of the Miss Cleo character or to protect Cleo the person's like kind of identity? Like, do you think that she kept them separate for like, who, who was she trying to protect the, the, the character or herself? If you had a, to, that's an interesting question. Um, and I'll start by saying, I think Cleo became Miss Cleo. I think by the end, there wasn't really a difference. Um, I think she really embodied that character to such a degree that it became her. And I think in some ways, and we talk about the trauma she went through in her life, I think in a lot of ways it was a way of coping with that trauma. Um, she she reinvented herself. She wasn't going to let that trauma define her. But I think when she went into seclusion towards the end of her life, which was largely driven by the media, and the way that we handled telling her story and sort of co-opting her story and co-opting her legacy, I think that was a little bit of the sort of child Cleo coming out. That that person that would never, that was so filled with trauma and unease and that you never really escape from no matter how much work you do on yourself, that childhood version of yourself. I think she was tired emotionally, physically, spiritually. I think she needed to find a way to retreat and and find a new life. And and a lot of the people in the film um, are from that period, that period that helped her get out of that seclusion. Um, and, you know, we we interview her, her former partners, her um her roommates, uh, her her friends, and and they talk about sort of helping her her get out of it. But, but I do think, I mean, look, she, 
she went by Cleo for the rest of her life. Yeah. Like yeah. She, she took the name. She she really, really believed. And I think that's the thing you also get when you listen to the interviewees, her godsons say this, you know, one of her godsons who I think doesn't believe in any of, of this. Um, right. that, I think he's sort of like, ah, I don't, you know, he says we, we had differences of opinions when it came to our spirituality. He says, but for her, this was really real. Um, and I think that's, that's an important thing to remember for Cleo. I don't think this was an act for her. I think by the end, it became very real. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, yeah. And uh, just the fact that she went by Cleo, like officially, I didn't even realize that that was just like a small chunk of her name, you know, and that, that's such like a prime trivia question. But uh, so, yeah, folks, you can catch that. That's on HBO Max right now. It is incredible. But also on HBO Max, another one of your films that I, our listeners would not be stoked if I missed talking about Beanie Mania. Now, when we talked about Beanie Babies, it took us three episodes. I mean, it's a it, there's a lot there. Uh, were you a Beanie Baby kid? Like, were you, did you have a ton? I was a Beanie Baby kid. Um, I when we when we made the film and I I produced that. Um, I pulled out my sixth birthday party was a Beanie Baby birthday party, and my mother keeps <laughs> everything, and she still has the invitation to my sixth oh, wow. birthday party that has like cut out Beanie Babies on it, and we all got face painted like our favorite Beanie Babies. Um, and if I was in my office right now, which I'm not, you would see I have a, a seaweed the otter. Uh, that sits uh, next to me, who is my favorite Beanie Baby and was given to me by Peggy, who's in our film. Um, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Did yeah. she sign it? <laughs> uh, she didn't sign it, but it has a protector and it's like a very early era seaweed. So it's Damn. probably, you know, worth all of $16 or something. I was about to say, yeah. Spoiler like, alert to yeah. everyone. I get texts almost every day from like text messages still from people being like, where should I sell my Beanie Babies? Give them to your children or your grandkids. They are not worth anything, <laughs> but they are lovely plush toys. Yes. Yeah. That's like always the funniest thing. Uh, in, in our live show, we, we do a, a thing where we show how much a Beanie Baby goes for on eBay. And like, it's like Princess Diana, $900,000, but this one's seven. You know, <laughs> it's like this weird thing where some people just don't want to l- let it go. Yeah. Um, now, it, it seems that with the Beanie Baby story, you know, it, Ty Warner, like the, the creator, weird kind of dark Willy Wonka esque guy, uh, in, in my opinion, my finding. It seemed like there was like a trail of women that he had to walk over uh, in a lot of instances to get to where he was. Um, when, when you like, what was something that you found kind of shocking as far as like the trail of Ty going from making the beanies in his apartment to becoming the billionaire that he is? So my favorite part about the Beanie Baby story will always be the fact, uh, and I say this phrase with utmost love and admiration for this this phrase it was an empire built by soccer moms by yeah. by moms from suburban chicago who had been underestimated and they they built it from the ground up it was one cul-de-sac in chicago and yes ty warner is the name we remember but peggy mary beth i mean the beckys like they are they are the people that that created this. They are the reason that you know Beanie Babies. They are the reason that you wanted Beanie Babies. Um, and that was, um, again, shocking, but not shocking, right? So often um, sort of history is told by the people who who strangle, strangle it into, into the books, but it's usually right. not made by them. Um, and so I, I was just so interested. And then, I mean, just from sort of a, a nerdy, like, uh, creation story perspective i'm always fascinated by how the beanies were made and sort of the utmost care that it took on ty's side of 
you know, he he was um, a lot of people use Willy Wonka to describe him, but he really thought through, I mean, exact colors and patterns. And these little toys were not just mass produced without a care in the world. Each one had a very specific story. And I mean, again, you look at Google image, see me the otter like that. There's something so captivating about that, that otter and the way he yeah. holds his piece of seaweed and the, where his eyes are positioned. And like they, they do just people always talk about the eyes, but they always look at you in this way that no other toy seems to. Well, yeah, and I love how they're understuffed on purpose so you can, like, sit them up. Like, I love how, like, them being able to sit up is, like, a big feature. Like, right, right, <laughs> it's like no, right. these ones can sit. Yeah. It's, like, great. But <laughs> um, I... We when we, when we were talking about it on, on our show, we uh, talked about the murder that happened where a guy, you know, lent someone or, or he, he promised to help a guy sell some Beanie Babies and he pocketed more money. And th it ended up becoming a murder and a guy's in prison now, like for a long fucking time for killing a guy. W like what was kind of the darkest aspect of the craze to you? Because um, I know that there was like robberies and all kinds of crazy stuff that happened. So, yeah, so there's certainly the kind of on paper darkness that's really scary and sad from murders to robberies to there's an infamous photo that you've probably seen of like a couple on a, a courtroom floor dividing their oh, yeah. babies in a divorce <laughs> hearing. Yeah. Uh, but actually, I think the more sort of dark and devastating aspect is the way in which the greed just took people over. It turned what was something really fun and enriching to do with your kids. And for the most part, it became an adult's hobby. Kids stopped being involved and adults were just chasing it for the money. And I think, you know, the 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 women who I mentioned in the beginning talk about this in the film, like that was the moment for them when it ended. The moment when they started losing, you know, they all started to do this for their kids as well. And when it stopped being about their kids and stopped being fun, it stopped being worth it for them. Uh, Mary Beth tells this great story uh, about her son, who's also in our film, um, cutting all the tags, like sitting like <laughs> quietly in a court. Like she has many kids and she's like, it was one of those days where the house was quiet and you're like, this is not good that the house is quiet. And, you know, I turned a corner and he sat there and cut all the oh, tags no. up. And she said, but, you know, I couldn't be, you know, this is a kid. How can you be mad? He's he's playing with these toys, you know, whatever. Um, but I think that's the perspective we have to to maintain. And, and now I hope people do, you know, look, uh, when I look at a baby, Beanie Baby, I think of my grandmother. I think about the fact that we'd go to McDonald's every Friday and get Happy Meals and collect the teeny beanies. And those are the memories that I, I think are sort of the most important to keep about Beanie Babies. Yeah, my grandmother too. She would call it quests. And she'd say, I'm going on my quest. And uh, I had, I mean, I still do my, it's funny. My my parents, they threw out all of my Pokemon cards, which are now worth a shitload of money. My mother But they threw kept all, all the Beanie too. Babies. Yeah, it's yeah. so, <laughs> I'm like, what so infuriating. I know. <laughs> so you can throw Pokemon cards in a drawer, dude. But like you kept this crate of these stupid bears. Um, yeah, and also this, I mean, the poems, by the way, when you're talking about cutting off tags, it, it makes me think of the poems, which is such an iconic thing. I didn't know that, most of the like i think what over a hundred of the first ones are written by uh lena trevetti by lena yeah and, and, and that wasn't really even like compensated for that was just part of her like day of work you know yeah Do you so think... lena lena and her brother both worked for ty and they um they were sort of the masterminds before, behind some of the original poems that you know and love um and it was uh yeah i mean again it was sort of a classic like there are the names that we remember and the and the names of the people that we don't and often the things that you love about um it's why and and we 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 talk about this in in Cleo too in Miss Cleo um 
you know, don't always believe everything you're told, right? Um, I think in many ways, a lot of these stories we're talking about are cautionary tales in a variety of ways, right? Like there's the cautionary tale of don't believe everything you're told about a human being, right? Do your own due diligence, know that they're they're probably more than just this one-dimensional person, but also don't believe everything when it comes to, um, you know, uh, your own life and what you're doing. Don't don't necessarily believe that calling this 499 hotline is 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 the right move and and right. question that <laughs> but also don't believe that that the histories you've been fed are all right um you know i i am always fascinated um by the number of th times that i learn that that again stories that i swear i know and and that's been another fun part on on uh, watching we went through this with with beanie mania and also with miss cleo watching people on twitter tweet um you know i'm about to sit down to watch call me miss cleo but i know cleo's story and then sort of tweet oh my god wait i know none of this and so i think it's this constant asking yourself of like do i actually know the real story um and if i'm so certain i do like maybe let's just triple check ourselves and make sure right. make sure we do especially those stories that i think now you know are sort of in the zeitgeist of the late 90s and early 2000s when a lot of us were were growing up and we're sort of just accepting what was fed to us as children uh or you know young adults and not really questioning now as as you know as grown adults going back and maybe maybe revisiting those times and and thinking about what we might have missed right yeah i mean that's such a big thing on our show is like like we always say what what makes a culture dump it's like well it has to be something that everyone thinks that they know about but then there's like the one thing that no one saw coming you know it's like when we were doing beanie babies the thing that we thought was the craziest a besides him like basically smacking his girlfriend in a hotel lobby or was that he was a plastic surgery addict and like like the care that he put into making the beanie babies perfect he applied that to his face and uh that's really strange and then that goes into this whole man in the tower like don't look at me kind of thing um you've also done a lot of true like hard true crime stuff like things on organized crime and dc snipers and who was you know one of them was my old pen pal um do you have a preference like when you go into a project would you rather something like hard hitting and dark like mafia stuff or a serial killer or do you prefer the pop culture -y stuff um i think there are more similarities than you would think um, in those sorts of projects. I, um, what motivates me in all of my work uh, is um, kind of two things. One is sort of holding truth to power um, and exposing things that need to be exposed. And the other is making sure that people whose whose stories haven't been heard get out there. Um, and so I think a lot of the time when it comes to serial killers or um, I've done a lot on um, sexual assault and domestic violence, um, we don't hear from the victims a lot. Um, we don't remember their names. We don't remember their stories. And my hope is that we can um, undo some of the harm that's been done by allowing them to reclaim those narratives and reclaim those stories. And so I really, really enjoy um telling those stories of course uh psychologically mentally they are not easy um and we need to talk more about that in our industry as a whole i think the sort of psychological uh effect that that has um we talked a bit about this when we were making woodstock 99 we um the woodstock 99 film burn it down we talked to a lot of um uh, survivors of sexual assault and violence. And we talked about the idea of sort of vicarious trauma and the trauma that we carry as filmmakers when we sort of tell these stories and 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 relate 
to them and and share them. Um, and I think that's, again, something we need to talk more about as we talk more about just mental health in general. Um, I, I think there's something that I love about, you described it as sort of these pop culture stories, because, you know, when you sit down and, and you're, you choose to watch a film about uh, serial killers, domestic violence, sexual assault, you sort of know, okay, like I'm getting into something here. Part of what I love about these kind of pop culture moment stories is that lots of people sit down thinking they're getting something and we give them something else entirely. Um, and I think that is, um, really important because we get a cross-section of viewers that wouldn't necessarily sit down for some of my other work, but might sit down and think, oh, this is going to be a, a good laugh. Like, let me, yeah. and, we, and we get to actually give a real message um, on top of it that maybe they wouldn't have signed up for at the, at the jump had they known. And I, I, you know, my, my, I only really have one litmus test when it comes to deciding if I'm going to tell a story or I want to be part of telling a story. And it's, it's, does the story need to be told? And, um, you know, is there, can, can we, can we do some kind of greater good in telling this story? And sometimes you can't, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's, I think, you know, we're getting to an era of the overproliferation of serial killer stories that I, I wonder on a daily basis, like, what are we doing here? Why do we keep telling these stories? And we're talking a lot about it um, with, with various, um, you know, adaptations scripted and unscripted that are coming out. But I think there was a chance to tell a story that was worth telling with Miss Cleo, with Beanie Babies, um, with Burn It Down. And I was just really happy to be a part of, of, of telling all of those and also incredibly lucky on all of the films I've worked on to have the teams that I've had. It, filmmaking is a team sport um, through sure. and through and um, every single person adds something and I couldn't have done it without my teams on all of them. You know, it's it's interesting when you talk about here, like the trauma that a film crew would, you know, like the secondhand kind of, you know, it rubs off on you. It, it, it It's like with law enforcement, you know, sometimes you crack a huge case, but it, it fucks you up in your head for the rest of your life. And I feel like now, you know, with true crime being at the absolute peak of popularity, there is a little bit more, just a little bit more focus on the victim side, thanks to filmmakers like you, you know, and I feel like maybe that there was like a trepidation or a fear where people, it's so easy easy to say how awful someone was, but to be able to empathize with an interview subject that actually went through it. I feel like there's a lot of filmmakers that just want the quick sleazy product and they don't want to actually invest themselves emotionally the way that, that you have when, when talking to victims. Do you think that we're going to start seeing, you know, people take the genre of true crime more seriously, or do you feel like we've just gone so far with all this shit coming out? Cause like with Dahmer, for instance, on Netflix, most watched thing ever, but everyone's defending it. Like, Oh, well, it's really the victim story. It's like, yeah, but then he eats them still. And like, everyone's like going as Halloween costumes. Like there is no escaping the exploitative quality unless you really do it right. And it's hard to do. Uh, do you, do you see like a, a turn in the tide of true crime at all? Or do you feel like it's just, it's just gone too far. You know, it's such a hard question to answer. I, I hate to try to predict anything when it when it sure. comes to our industry. Um, but I do think we're talking about it more, which is the first step. Um, I also think, you know, there are a lot of sort of um, victim advocacy groups who will say like, look, you don't want to see that on TV. Like, it's our fault. Like, we're the ones who watch it. Like, you know, it, that yeah. stuff gets made because we watch it. And if we don't want that stuff, we've got to stop watching it. And that's easier said than done. Um, but I do think we we need to have 
we need to keep having the conversations we're having and, and talk about it because it's also, it's not easy to make those films and not sort of slide into that place of, of um, telling these stories in a way that feels uh, sort of like we're, we're re-victimizing the victims. You know, I, I, sometimes you can't help in true crime, but my hope is that we can not do more harm than has right. already been done. Um, and so, you know, I think we just have to keep talking about it and keep looking at sort of why why we're telling these stories. Um, I, I did a podcast series uh, recently called Mafia Tapes, which was about a um, associate of the Gambino Mafia family. Um, and we did something very different in our last episode. We actually sort of we we turned the tables on on the whole story and basically took a look at ourselves and and why we had told the story and what we wanted to accomplish and and kind of asked these exact questions like are we part of the problem have we been playing into this like why did we do this um and that was uh really important to me to sort of to look at that and and have a harder look but i think it's it's a constant the work is never done right like every project yeah. and and even on a project like call me miss cleo where you would think oh god you're probably not having these conversations and thinking about these things like we are always thinking about we have to be and you know this is call me miss cleo is a film about spirituality and gender and sexuality and race and you know like we had a lot there's of, so much to it i so was much. so surprised yeah and and we unfortunately you know like each of those issues could have been 10 films and we tried to pack them all into 90 minutes and it's, you know, no film is perfect. Um, this is not a, call me Miss Cleo, it's not a perfect film. Um, but we tried our best at every turn to um, talk to, um, you know, we had a, a very sort of representative um, group of people on our film in terms of um, gender, race, you know, identity, background, sexual orientation. We also, though, um, screened the film um, for some people outside of communities that we weren't a part of to make sure that we were we were getting all of the different perspectives. And I think that is part of it, just sort of like not not being in an echo chamber and making sure you're, you know, noting where your blind spots are. You know, I have a certain set of blind spots as a straight sure. white woman. And how do I make sure that we are telling a film that feels um, as representative and inclusive as we possibly can? Right. Well, and I think you did a really good job with that. I mean, but Cleo's story is so inclusive. Like you, you had to, you know, like it's it, it, like this, the cast of characters that came into in and out of her life. But um, before we, we wind this down, we got to talk a little bit about Woodstock 99 uh, as, as we have been trickling it in. So burn it down. Uh, what drew you initially to Woodstock 99? I mean, for me, I watched it as it was unfolding on MTV, you know, I was 10 years old and it always stuck with me as it, that's why I, you know, I did 70 plus episodes about it. I'm on the other show what what brought you to that story so uh Woodstock 99 I am not the target demographic for Woodstock 99 right like I am not <laughs> I did not listen to any of the music really that played at Woodstock 99 like in my spare time um I probably would have not been caught dead at that festival um and I um but it was it was a moment that I remember happening and I remember like us talking about for years later, but I also went into that film um, and was really interested, you know, we all knew um, that there were these other films being made as well at the same time, right? Like we knew that there were lots of things going on. And I was struck early on that all of the teams 
were basically straight white men. Like it was just mm. a lot of men making these films. And I- As was Woodstock 99. As was Woodstock 99, yeah. Like again, like I, and I got a lot of criticism from people actually saying like, why are you making this film? Like, you know, you wouldn't have been at that festival. And you're right, I wouldn't have been at that festival. But actually I think part of the reason I wouldn't have been at that festival was because I would have been scared to be at that festival. Not because I didn't like the music, but because I would have been afraid for my safety at that festival. Um, and so I I decided pretty early on, like I wanted to take a kind of different approach and talk to more women. We interviewed a lot of women in the film. Um, we interviewed um, female performers. We interviewed female journalists um, and talk about not just the fires and the destruction of property at Woodstock 99, which was, you know, an element, but the sexual assaults and rapes that happened at the festivals, which were in a lot, of ways way more important than the you know the shit that got burned oh, down in, in definitely yeah. more important yeah um and so uh we um i was i was really and it's hard not to give spoilers on the film um but i was just blown away <laughs> right. by the stories and um the sort of uh, Kathleen Hanna, who's the lead singer of Bikini Kill, uh, is in the sure. film, and she um, she was not at the festival, but she her friends started coming back from the festival, telling her what happened, and um, she actually uh, she and her husband Ad Rock from the BC Boys um, used uh, his accepting a VMA that year to um, talk about Woodstock '99 yeah. and his acceptance speech, and it's it's one of those moments uh in our memory that we forgot happened um sort of like that moment when justin timberlake talks uh about about britney spears on on the radio yeah that we were like oh god did that happen um it's one of those um and the response to his speech is atrocious um, oh my god yeah you hear it when uh when ad rock says um i'm talking about the rapes you hear someone in the audience go woo and you're like what the fuck like jesus christ yeah we we, we played that clip on the show it's it's so gnarly but that's yeah yeah and 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 so i was just really interested in and and it was interesting we we premiered the film at london film festival and it premiered at a time when the uk was really having conversations about this in a big way um it had it had really been top of mind in the news and so to see you know one of my favorite moments from from our premiere was this woman came up to me she must have been 85 years old um at the at the end of the film and she just she grabbed onto my arms and she said can i swear before i swear yes can you say fuck yeah can i swear great okay she grabbed my arms and she said i'm just so fucking angry but <laughs> but i think that was the point and she and she walked away and i just thought you know like wow to get that that was that was really great for me but we also wanted to and 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 i'm i'm glad we did we spent a lot of time in rome new york we wanted to get, i know i'm so jealous yeah oh god so many stories but we um we there was a lot of joy in that festival too and there was a lot of incredible community and sort of the message of community to me is the message of woodstock and like if you're going to get it right what you need is community on every aspect and we we interviewed um uh one of the original creators of woodstock 69 and him, he sort of talked about that. Um, but yeah, I, I could go on and on about about Woodstock '99. It was it was such an incredible. Uh, well, when the when the film comes out, uh, we'll, we'll have to have you on Podcast '99. Yes, uh, yes just yes. To, to to deep dive your own film again. Um, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned that there was a like some there. I mean. I don't want to say a lot because it makes it seem like I'm taking away from the negative aspects, but there was a lot of positivity. You know, there was there was a couple hundred thousand people there while a lot of them had the worst time of their entire lives that I'm sure still haunts them. There was 
a lot more that didn't. And that was really surprising to us doing the podcast because we went into it thinking flames, rapes, like all the terrible shit. And through interviewing, I think now we've interviewed almost like 40 people, like in all different you know, ranges, men, women, this, that, and the, like, we were so surprised at the humanity uh, and, and the kind of positive aspects. Like, w was that something that you were expecting to find or, or, or not was that at a, all. a surprise? Especially when I went to Rome, New York, like I thought, oh God, we're going to roll up and they're going to be so angry. We're here. Like this, like, mm -hmm. you know, this thing in their history that they just want to forget. And everyone was like, this was the greatest weekend. Like we had the best, like there was no one who said a bad thing about it, despite the fact that, you know, it ended in flames and their town had to pick up the pieces and they lost a bunch of money. Um, they were really, and I think that goes to, you know, even in times of when there are, when there are sort of bad things happening, there is always humanity and there are always people like looking out for the goodness of, of, of others. And, you know, two, two things can be true. We go into this and call me Miss Cleo too. Like there are multiple right. truths. Um, but I think that, um, it, it was really great to see one of my favorite interviews in, in Burn It Down is with Insane Clown Posse, who... Um, oh, are... Okay, I was going to ask you about that, but I didn't know if I... Okay, tell me everything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, uh, they... So they are probably one of, if not the most misunderstood band, right, around. Um, Absolutely. If you don't know ICP, like, they are some of the best people I've ever met. Their fans are really good people. Like they have a very strong sense of like, you know, if someone falls down, you community, can come up really? and community and yeah. And, and that's a whole nother, there's a whole, my, my, my friend made a whole nother film about them and how they actually were on like the FBI watch list for a while. Like, oh yeah, there's just a whole ICP story, but um, I think watching, um, watching them talk about, uh, the festival and and sort of like what what they wanted for it and what it became, um, you know, was really indicative of like people wanted this to be something great. You know, I don't think people went in with a sort of burn it down mentality, but it's part of the reason we named the film that um, for a kind of dual meaning of like, yes, there was actual burning it down that happened at the festival. But what is that? what does that mean and what can it mean to do better? Like let's burn down the shit that created this and build something up better in its place. And I think my interview with ICP, which also was like middle of lockdown, like in Detroit, <laughs> uh, we stopped the interview halfway through and all ordered chicken fingers. Like it was just a classic. Fuck, dude, I'm so like, jealous. I, yeah, it was just so great. Everything about it was great. Um, and they were really you know, I'm always really uh, honored when celebrities and 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 Raven Simone and Deborah Wilson did this and Call Me Miss Cleo too. They just come to the interview as they are. They they don't ask for a million prep questions. They sort of trust you to like go on a journey with them, and they really go on the journey with you. And you know, for people who have been screwed over by the media a million times, I'm not sure I'd have that grace to just right. like show up to a person and trust that they were not going to hoodwink you. And, and they really did trust me and go on this journey with me. And there were a lot of artists who did, you know, I can talk about some of the other ones. I mean, we interviewed Melky Jean, Wyclef's little sister. I want to ask you about that yeah. now. So that is uh, the number one most notorious set that our listeners talk about, we talk about. Did you actually watch the Wyclef Jean set from Woodstock '99? Yeah, and Melky's it's like start to finish. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and she's she's a great singer, but that set, 
you want to talk about a shit show. Like, the guy tries to break his guitar. It doesn't break. Tries to set it on fire. It doesn't light on fire. Brings a woman on stage to sing Janis Joplin, who then cusses out the whole band and embarrasses them. Like, it, it is so crazy. And when I saw it, I was like, there's no way that she's going to ask her, like, what the fuck was going on with that set? But did you want to? <laughs> so, you know, a lot of what we focused on with Milky, which was really interesting, because people remember Wyclef, right? But they don't really remember... Like Melky opened for Wyclef, and Melky was yes, he did. Melky yeah. was eighteen years old. Oh like, wow! Imagine being eighteen years old and a black woman facing that crowd. That's like already really riled up, already really sweaty, like already really dehydrated, and just like on and and she she talks about like like being a kid, like growing up like in the streets of New York and New Jersey, and like she was like we like there's something that like clicked on for us. And like we were gonna stick around, and then like we got on the bus afterwards, and we're like, let's get the fuck out of here. Like this shit is not gonna end well. And so they did. Like that was a like it's time, it's time to go. Um, but no, we. I mean, we talked about sort of like also just like what it was like to be an eighteen year old black woman and stare out at a sea of three hundred thousand angry white men. Like that's a yeah. Scary. And even if they're a huge fan of yours, it doesn't take away the. It the doesn't different and, like the yeah right and talk about fan like no one knew who Melky Jean was no one no, heard no. her songs like but but it also and that goes to like the positive aspect too like pretty much any performer who you talk to from Woodstock '99 will say like it was one of the most incredible performance experiences just like the noise and the 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 energy until it turned like there was just this this like tidal wave that Melky would be like I would say to people throw your hands up and you would just watch like the full sea of hands like everything you told people to do they would do and and that was really magical I think for her as a performer um but then there is this sort of like you know we were always going back and forth with this and burn it down like when when was that a good energy when was it a bad energy how do we control that energy um but yeah all those sets i mean one of my favorite sets to watch is still icp like that oh, of I mean, course yeah. everything they do i mean if, if you've never seen an icp show like you're gonna be like what is happening but it, it's a classic icp show what they what they put oh, on yeah well they kick out the beach balls of money tape to it which like you're like holy fuck like what a bad fucking idea but one thing we always joked about with icp is that they were paid i think upwards of like a hundred thousand dollars to to play that and they use that as the nest egg to start their own festival which have had like over 20 more than there have been Woodstock. So it's like Woodstock fucked up so bad that ICP, the world's most hated band, quote unquote, has thrown dozens more festivals than you have. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's crazy. Um, I think, I mean, yeah, you, you brought up ICP that, that was like my, my big, uh, my big thing. So yeah, when all that's, when that film's coming out, we'll, we'll be sure to let everyone know it's going to be a big deal. Uh, people have been waiting for that. So Thank you so much for coming on. Is there you got any other projects coming out you want to you want to plug or you want you want to talk about? I know it's the holiday season. You did fruitcake fraud uh, a, a while back. <laughs> That's an amazing fruitcake story. Fruitcake fraud on Discovery Plus, which was just nominated for a Real Screen Award, which is exciting oh, with a bunch of other things, great films. Um, but n nothing that's announced yet that I can talk about yet. But uh, we'll have to talk next year, and I'll I'll tell you more once uh, more things are out. Awesome. Well, thank you, Celia, for coming on, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. There you have it, folks. Be sure you check out Call Me Miss Cleo on HBO Max. While you're there, you could also check out Beanie Mania. And yeah, just be sure you check out uh, any of uh, Celia's work that you can find. It's all really great stuff. Very pleased to have been able to get her on the show today. That being said, make sure you follow us on Instagram at Culture Dumps. Send us suggestions, comments, all that good stuff at culturedumps at gmail.com. Remember, January 20th at Whammy Analog Culture Dumps Live. And... 
keep on dumping.